That was Alan Hirsch in the video talking about authentic <clears throat> Christianity, which, which could simply be called Christianity, uh, because in the most accurate sense, I think there really is only one type of Christianity, which by its very nature is authentic. Otherwise, I would, I would contend that anything else is not true Christianity, but I understand the point. Uh, that he's trying to make when he says, I think there's a type of Christianity in America that needs to be closed down. And I, I agree with him on that, that there are what I call church organizations that probably need to be shut down. So, so when we talk about the church, sometimes we talk about the organization of the church, and other times we talk about the organism that is the church, right? The, the actual church is us. It's the collective universal body of Christ that is made up of individual followers of Christ. And there's nothing wrong, by the way, with talking about both. Uh, there is an organizational aspect to the church, and that's not inherently bad or uh, evil or unbiblical at all. And we went through this uh, in detail a few weeks back, so I won't go through that again this morning, other than to say that the early church was very much organized around local congregations, and there was a structure to that. There were, there were buildings, in fact. They didn't just meet in people's homes. There were programs which were funded by finances given by the people. There were leadership meetings with pastors and deacons and missionaries. There was church discipline. There were organized times of worship and study of the scriptures and fellowship and prayer. There was a structure of leadership that gave out uh, ministry assignments, and all of that was organized, which, by the way, is a gift from God. Our capacity to think and plan and structure and pull resources together in order to leverage our individual giftings to their greatest effect for the sake of the gospel being advanced, that is a gift from God. It's not some kind of aberration that's been twisted since the first century, as some people would have us believe today. Now, with that said, however, there are those who have used the resources of the church and twisted the organizational aspects of the church for their own personal gain. And in the process, they've led scores of people away from the gospel. And that is wrong. That is absolutely evil and it is unbiblical. As Paul puts it so clearly and forcefully, in fact, in his letter uh, to the church in Galatia, chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, he writes... I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Those are really strong words from the Apostle Paul. And he spells it out here. There's only one true gospel. And anyone who follows anything else is not a true servant of Jesus Christ. Which means there's only one true Christianity. And yet there are many church organizations that claim adherence to the gospel that are actually preaching a distorted version of that. And yet in his unfathomable grace, God gives us opportunity after opportunity to make course corrections through a process, of course, of repentance and returning to the true calling of God, just like he did in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. 
It's an opportunity, as uh, Alan Hirsch uh, puts it, to get our act together because the day is coming when the church will be called to account, okay? And we're, we're not talking, by the way, about perfection here or some sort of legalistic structure. We all make mistakes. I'm certain there's no perfect church out there, including this one. I'm referring to those religious organizations that promote a false gospel, all right? But I also agree that the church in America has a very bright future ahead of it. It may look different than it has in times past, but I can say with great confidence that the true church, the true followers of Jesus Christ have a very bright future because Jesus stated very plainly to his followers in Matthew 28, 20. He said, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, the end of the age hasn't come yet which means that we have nothing to worry about. We have nothing, nothing. Let me, let me just say that again in case you missed it. The true followers of Jesus Christ, listen, have nothing to worry about when it comes to our future as his church. Why? Because he is always with us. No matter who gets elected president, no matter who holds a majority in Congress, no matter who sits in the Supreme Court, no matter what happens to the stock market, no matter how many stupid laws are passed in this country or how far our culture slides into moral depravity, Jesus Christ is with us always. That doesn't mean it'll always be easy. Ask the Christians in Syria and Iraq today, right? We, we may experience tremendous persecution, but if we remain true to the end, he is always with us, which means that the church will remain. There's a bright future ahead of us. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus told Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the reason that I bring all of this up this morning is because of course, we just finished working our way through chapter 9 of the gospel according to John last Sunday. And this morning, in a sermon titled uh, One Church, we're going to study the first half of chapter 10, which addresses both the true church and also those who would try and uh, prey on the church and turn it into something inauthentic, which was a problem in the first century. And in fact, it has been a problem ever since right up to today. Now, here's why that should matter to us. Because church can be inauthentic. Church can be insincere, even a bit cold and impersonal. It can be doctrinally off the mark and more of a Sunday experience than an actual family that we belong to and rely on day in and day out. And as long as times are good and everything is going our way, that is enough for many people. A lot of people don't feel that church needs to be anything more than that. And yet, when the rubber meets the road and times aren't so great, either in society as a whole or in your own personal life, it's amazing how quickly church can really begin to matter to people as it should. And it is in those times that inauthentic doesn't cut it. Insincere and impersonal become insufficient and bad doctrine will no longer sustain us through difficulty when what's being taught in the church cannot be borne out in real life, out in the real world. There's a substantial trove of historical data that consists, uh, consistently charts the greatest periods of uh, church growth historically 
happening during the most difficult times of struggle and persecution for Christians. You see, that's why this matters. Because the time to get it right isn't after real persecution begins or after hard times befall us as a society or as individuals, even in our own lives. And so just a couple of points that we need to understand about these passages we're going to read this morning before we dive in here. Chapter breaks in the Bible between chapters are used typically to transition from one event to the next uh, or from one teaching to the next. However, there is no transition between chapters 9 and 10 here in John. In fact, the, the chapter opens in the ancient Greek language with the double amen, amen, truly, truly, which Jesus used often as an emphatic, but it's never used to begin a new discourse in John, which tells us that chapter 10 is simply a continuation of the conversation in chapter 9, which is important to understand. Also, we'll see at the end of our text today that people, uh, the people that Jesus is addressing refer back to the blind man that was healed in chapter 9. So the audience here is the same uh, in these two chapters, which means that chapter 10 must be read within the context of chapter 9. And in chapter 9, we find Jesus being confronted by the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, after he healed a man, a blind man, on the Sabbath. In the process, they accuse him of being demon-possessed, Jesus, and not the Son of God. They, they also accuse the one true follower of Christ that is in that story, the blind man who was healed and worshiped Jesus at the end of the chapter. They accuse him as being a reprobate, and so they excommunicate him from the church from the religious community. And so as chapter 10 opens, Jesus, right on the heels of the highly charged and very heated discussion in chapter 9, is addressing the behavior of these Pharisees who are supposed to be the leaders of God's people. And so he begins teaching them what the true church should look like and what true church leadership should look like as well. And just as it was intended to instruct God's people then, it should instruct us today. In fact, it should prompt us to evaluate the state of the church regularly and then make adjustments if necessary to how we view the church and who we follow as members of his church. Because if we allow the church to conform to a distorted version of the gospel, if we follow those who are preaching any version of that message other than what Jesus preached, then we become in, in an inauthentic version of the church, a caricature of the true church. And that isn't an idle warning to us. It's actually an observation of what has been happening in religious communities for centuries, including the modern church in America today. There are elements of the church that are inauthentic and consequently leading many people away from the truth of the gospel. And I believe that in many cases, those ministries and those ministers started out with the best of intentions. But good intentions don't keep us in the way of Christ. A vigilant commitment to the truth of his word does, as David explains in Psalm 119 so well. In fact, the whole psalm he does, but right about halfway, he writes, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Verse 105, okay, the, the word of God is what keeps us on the narrow road. It's what guides us by way of his spirit who lives inside of us to the way of the gospel. Now, I've, I've been in churches that I'm certain were full of well-intentioned people being led by men and women who were teaching outright fallacies. 
concepts and doctrines that are not in the scriptures. And the key to where I believe many go wrong is when we move out from under the lordship and leadership of Jesus Christ first, and instead we begin following those men and women whose motives are primarily for personal gain. Those who use the church for personal promotion and personal prosperity instead of giving their lives in service to God's people and the promotion of the gospel. And that is what Jesus is trying to get across to the Pharisees in our story today. That's why I bring all of this up. So let's pick up the conversation at chapter 10 and we'll read the first six verses to start. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that, is a, a, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers." This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So in Jesus's day in the, the Near East sheep farming communities, there were these large central courtyards bordered by stone walls. And there would be one in each community which were built next to a house and they were called sheepfolds. And at the end of each day, the shepherds would all bring their small individual flocks to the same sheepfold at night. And then they would pull their resources typically and they would pay a gatekeeper who would then stay with the sheep overnight. In the morning, the gatekeeper would only open the gate for the shepherds uh, who would stand at the gate. And as all of the individual flocks of sheep were mixed together in the same sheepfold, each shepherd would then begin to call out his sheep by name because he knew his sheep. And then his sheep and only his sheep would come out of the sheepfold one at a time and follow him and no one else. Why? Because the sheep knew their shepherd's voice. This is one of the major differences between sheep herding uh, then and now, by the way. Typically today, sheep are herded by dogs. They, they drive them uh, to keep them going where the shepherd wants them to go. Whereas in ancient Israel, sheep were led by the shepherd. He went ahead of them and they followed him. And if any would begin to stray, he could simply call out and they would come back because they knew his voice. There's a great old story from uh, World War I uh, where some soldiers uh, stole a flock of sheep, uh, a small flock of sheep from a hillside near Jerusalem. And the shepherd woke up uh, when this was happening and there was nothing he could do by force to get his sheep back. He didn't have a gun and these soldiers were driving these sheep away from the sheepfold. And so he stood there and began calling out to his sheep and they turned around one at a time and came back to him and the soldiers couldn't do anything about it because they knew their shepherd's voice. You see, sheep know their shepherd's voice and will only follow that shepherd. It means that if anyone else other than the shepherd is going to get into the sheep, into the sheepfold, he would have to come in by some other illegitimate way. So the gatekeeper in this first illustration that Jesus is giving them is the Father who opens the gates of heaven to Christ, the shepherd who brings his sheep safely into the sheepfold and who calls them out individually by name to follow him because he knows his sheep and his sheep know him. The thieves and robbers are the religious leaders who are more interested in fleecing the sheep for their own gain 
rather than guiding, protecting, and nurturing them. These are the Pharisees of chapter 9 who insult and berate and cast out the sheep when they no longer profit the false shepherds, just as we saw with their treatment of the blind man who was healed. So Jesus is responding here in chapter 10 to what has just happened in chapter 9 with a very harsh, albeit true, analogy about these Pharisees. And as he does so often, he references Old Testament scripture all throughout his discourse, which should have spoken volumes to these Pharisees who knew the scriptures well. In Ezekiel uh, 34, verses 2 through 6, God addresses the leaders of his people when he says, shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak, you have not strengthened. The sick, you have not healed. The injured, you have not bound up. The strayed, you have not brought back. The lost, you have not sought. And with force and harshness, you've ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. This is a picture of those who are charged with shepherding God's people and yet they use their position instead to profit themselves. In Ephesians 4, 11 through 14, Paul, uh, referring, referring of course to the, the New Testament church now says, and he gave apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes." It sounds like elements of the church today. So the word shepherds in verse 11 is the Greek word poimen. Literally translated means pastor or shepherd. In fact, some of the modern translations, some of yours may have the word pastor in that verse instead of shepherd. The point being that just as this analogy and warning by Jesus was intended for the Pharisees there at the time. It was also intended for those of us who shepherd or pastor the local congregations today. And part of that warning is to always remember that Jesus Christ alone is the head shepherd. He alone is the good shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. He is the senior pastor of his church. There is truly and only one shepherd. All of the rest of us pastors. We're under shepherds called and appointed by Christ to pastor or shepherd the local flock always and without exception under the headship of Jesus Christ. But therein lies the problem with many religious leaders then and now. Because the moment that we think we're in charge, that we, we think we're clever enough or creative enough or intelligent enough or gifted enough or popular enough to lead ahead of Christ the moment that we think we can improve on his word by writing clever or creative sermons that make a big splash, but miss the original intent of God's message in that passage of scripture. The moment we begin to pour more resources into self-promotion than into service. The moment that our hearts are captured by people's praise more than the presence of God. The moment that we step out underneath the lordship and headship of Christ over his church. 
That is the moment that we become inauthentic and to be frank, useless for the sake of the gospel. Jesus is and always will be the head of his church. And there is not a man or woman on this earth who can ever usurp his authority. In Numbers 27, 15 through 18, it says, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. It sounds an awful lot like the story that Jesus is telling the Pharisees, doesn't it? And then verse 18 says, So the Lord spoke to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom there is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. So Joshua is chosen by God to lead his sheep to be the shepherd of God's people. And in case you didn't know, the name Joshua in the Greek is the name Jesus. You see, this passage in Numbers 27 is a prophetic picture of Jesus as the shepherd over God's people, which is the exact same picture that Jesus is trying to get across to these Pharisees. But they're missing it completely because they've become inauthentic leaders of the sheep. They've stepped out from under the headship of God. And there's only one remedy when the under shepherds, the local pastors have become inauthentic. There's only one cure, and that is repentance and renewed submission to Christ as the head of his church. You, you know, when great ministries fall, and we've seen all too many do just that, uh, just in our generation. But when that happens, I believe that is actually an act of God's grace, not only for his people, but for his leaders, because he loves those local pastors and those congregations just as much as any others. And so it is by his grace that he allows us to be humbled to be humiliated, not to destroy us. He allows it because he wants us to repent and be restored into right relationship with him and ultimately back into the ministry, even if that doesn't look like it did before. And so by his grace and his love for us, he sends a sober warning in this story today. And unfortunately, um, just as many won't listen today or maybe miss it altogether, so was the case with these Pharisees. Verse 6 says the, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. And so as we continue to read, if we don't take verse 6 <clears throat> into consideration, this narrative doesn't seem to make sense because Jesus has just been describing himself as a shepherd and now he's about to start referring to himself as the door of the sheep. And then he goes back to talking about being the shepherd later on, which seems a bit confusing at first. But now when you, uh, when you keep verse 6 in view, it makes sense. The Pharisees didn't understand this first analogy, according to verse 6. So he opens this next section of the story with a different analogy to try and help them understand the picture that he's painting for them. And then once he does that, he goes back and clarifies or further explains the first analogy by referring to himself again as the shepherd. It's, it's uh, just like when you try to explain something to a child and they don't understand your explanation. So you go at it from a different angle. And once they get it, you revisit the original conversation to make sure that it all makes sense to them. That's what's happening here. OK, so let's keep reading as Jesus takes a different approach now to the same teaching. We'll read verses seven through 10. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. 
If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus again echoes the passages that we've read in Ezekiel 34 and Numbers 27, which prophetically look forward to him as the shepherd, but he also calls himself now the door of the sheep. It was common for Near Eastern shepherds to sleep in the gateway of their own sheep pens when there was no physical gate or anyone else to watch the sheep, effectively making the shepherd himself the door. So when Jesus says, I am the door, that isn't negating him as the shepherd. He's simply using other imagery that he, his audience would easily understand. And then once again, he contrasts himself with those who try to fleece the sheep for their own selfish gain, the thieves and robbers. And then he adds one more component to the picture here. He says in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So not only does Jesus say that he is the way to salvation, but he emphatically makes the point here that he's the only way to salvation. He says, I am the door. Well, there's only one door. There was only one door to the sheepfold. There was no other opening to enter here. He's clearly uh, making a claim that he is the only way. He's that one door, the only way into the sheepfold. He says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. In other words, there is no other way. You must come by way of Jesus Christ if you are to experience eternal salvation. And this is really important for several reasons, not the least of which is the fact that in a moment he's going to talk about salvation for the Gentiles. And he's making the point that no matter who you are or what your background is, or what you've been raised to believe, or what anyone else teaches or tells you, there is still one and only one way to salvation. There is no other way. And of course, there were people then, and it's not hard to find people today, even in our culture, who believe that there are many pathways to heaven. In fact, I know people personally who believe that, that they can get to heaven uh, several different ways. They believe I can get to, to heaven by way of Jesus Christ and my Christian beliefs. They also believe that a good Muslim can get to heaven by way of their beliefs that a good Jew can get to heaven by way of their beliefs, that a good Buddhist can get to heaven by way of their beliefs, and so on. And since formal religions aren't really their own thing, they believe that they can get to heaven their own way as long as they're morally good and kind to others because there are many pathways to heaven. There's a theological term for that. It's called pluralism, the belief that there are many roads that lead to eternal life. But here's the problem with pluralism. The Bible teaches that salvation was made available to us by Jesus' atoning death on the cross. 1 John 2, 2 says that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Romans 4, 25 says Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. 1 Peter 3, 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. First Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is just a sampling of passages that make it very clear, according to the Christian gospel, that salvation is possible because of Jesus's death and resurrection, which means that if pluralism is correct, 
if there really are many other ways to get to heaven, then first of all, Jesus' death was completely unnecessary, right? There was no reason for him to die. If there were many other ways to get to heaven, why in the world then would God send his own son to die a horrific death on a cross to save us from our sins and offer us eternal life if there are any number of other ways to obtain that same salvation? Ways that don't require him to die on a cross. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, which is precisely why Jesus himself tells us in John 14, 6, that I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And of course, we just read where he explains to the Pharisees that I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And Luke tells us in Acts 4, 11 and 12 that Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And he says there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So if pluralism is correct and there are, in fact, many ways to heaven, if that is true, then not only did Jesus die for nothing, but Jesus himself and all of the biblical writers who wrote about him, both directly and prophetically, were all liars, right? Because they all agree with Jesus that he happens to be the only way to salvation. And so if you're going to take the pluralistic position that there are many ways to get to heaven, then you have to at least rule out Christianity and its beliefs as one of those pathways to get to heaven. Because if pluralism is correct, then the entire Bible has to be a lie. You can't have it both ways. And so when I talk to pluralists and they say, hey, look, man, there's no reason to get so worked up about all this. I'm simply saying that your way is fine for you and my way is fine for me. To which I reply, that is the very reason that I'm worked up because if your way really is fine for you, then my way is not fine for me or anyone else for that matter. If your way is truth, then my way has to be a lie. And so we absolutely have to get to the bottom of this because at least one of us is in eternal danger here. And where pluralism really begins to unravel is in the fact that most of the major religions have their own exclusive truth claims. So the exact same problem exists between pluralists and other religions as well, which ultimately means that pluralism cannot be true because it would defeat all of the other pathways to heaven if it were true. It stands in direct conflict with the truth claims in the other religions just as it does with Christianity, which means that pluralism defeats its own claims, you see. It simply doesn't work. It's a self-defeating argument. And so if, if you're going to claim to believe that there's a God or a life beyond this life, then you have to at least choose which truth claim you're going to believe because you cannot choose them all. Pluralism is a failed philosophy. And of course, we're not doing a study on comparative religions today as we have in the past, but I wanted to make that point. Why? Because Jesus is making that point in our story today as he will soon extend this teaching that he's the only way to salvation beyond the Jewish world to those who believed in many other religions. Let's keep reading verses 11 through 15. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And so Jesus now not only establishes himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, but he contrasts himself again with those who are illegitimate, inauthentic leaders who uh, do not truly care for the flock. They look to their own interest first. They abandon the sheep at the first sign of trouble. For them, tending to the sheep is about what they can get out of the sheep only. In the moment, the strain of the work becomes greater to the hired hand than the reward of being paid or recognized he runs away, leaving the sheep to be scattered, okay? The hired hand is someone who thinks that the flock exists for his own benefit. He has no concept of laying his own life down for them as Jesus does. And as long as there are local church congregations, there will always be genuine pastors, good, authentic leaders. In fact, most of them that I know are far more than the opposite. These are people who love and care for their flock. And at the same time, there will always be those who view that position strictly in terms of how it can serve them. These are hirelings. People who manipulate the resources of the organization of the church to feed their own desires at the expense of the membership. And the truth is, there have always been people who seek the pastorate because they're seeking influence or power or money or popularity or respect. They see it as an opportunity to be recognized. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 22, the Apostle Paul addresses both sides of this coin. He writes to Timothy, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So Paul describes those authentic leaders who do well in pastoring or shepherding God's people. And then verses 20 through 22 describe the hireling. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may, uh, the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. These are those pastors, those under shepherds in the church who seek their own gain first. And so Paul says, listen, don't, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. He's talking about being extremely careful in who we ordain or commission as pastors in the local church because we, and I say we, pastors, elders, can be implicated in their future sins if we appoint or ordain those who are unqualified to lead. It's a stern warning. This is exactly, by the way, why I've been very careful about who I allow to teach in this pulpit or to even publicly address this congregation because I care about you too much to let just anyone who claims to have a word from God get up here and speak. The truth is, if I don't know a person very well or know a lot about them from others that I trust, and I get calls and emails um, and letters almost daily from people that want to come through and, and speak in our church. If, if, a, if I don't know that person well or know someone who knows them well, if a person is inconsistent in their walk with Christ, if their attitude is not dripping with genuine humility and a love for this church, 
there's no way I'm going to let them get up here and, and address you or teach you or share their word from God. People that come in here and, and they want to tell me about how prophetic they are and how much God has given them something for this church when I don't even know them. So Jesus is warning these Pharisees. He says, look, don't lead like those hirelings who care actually nothing for the sheep. They're looking to their own, to their self, to their own gain first. He says, lead by my example and the good shepherd. I love how David Gusick puts it when he writes, the faithful pastor will as an under shepherd display the same characteristics as the good shepherd. He will sacrifice for the sheep, know the sheep and be known by them. He will be a shepherd and not a hireling who does not care about the sheep. He can never hope to display these characteristics to the same extent as Jesus, but they should reflect his heart and his goal. And there are many, by the way, most that I know fit that description. On the flip side, Charles Spurgeon, who was <laughs> never had a hard time letting you know what he thought. He said, how many there are of whom we have reason to fear that they must be hirelings because when they see false doctrine and error abroad, they do not oppose it. They're willing to put up with anything for the sake of peace and quietness. And Jesus lays it out here to these inauthentic religious leaders in our story. He says that he alone is the good shepherd and as under shepherds, local leaders, pastors in his church, we are to emulate his leadership only. Okay, let's finish our story for today as Jesus now extends the scope of his flock and reasserts his exclusive claim as the head of his church. Verses 16 through 21. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of those words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So Jesus now makes a statement that would have been highly sensational and quite shocking to the Jews had they understood him. Because in verse 16, when he says that I have other sheep that are not of this fold, he's indicating that there's going to be a full-fledged Mission to the Gentiles subsequent to his death and resurrection. And notice he says, I have other sheep. It's the present tense uh, Greek word echo. In other words, he didn't say I will have, I'm going to have. He says, I have other sheep, not of this fold. This was before the gospel was taken to the Gentiles. It's so comforting when I read passages like this to know that when Jesus says it, it's as good as done. And then he describes his sheep he says it is one flock, one flock with one shepherd, which means that although there are many organizations within the church, there is but one church and only one head of that church. That is Jesus Christ. He has all authority and power to lay down his life for us and to take it back up again, which means there has never been a moment, by the way, even in his death and resurrection, when Jesus was helpless or powerless, despite what many word of faith prosperity preachers have taught. In fact, his ultimate power and authority was on full display in his atoning work on the cross. And then as usual, after Jesus teaches the truth about himself, some accept him and others reject him. Which brings us back to the beginning of this message. 
There is one shepherd who leads us through one door to become a part of one flock so we can believe whatever we choose to because he allows us to think for ourselves. But at the end of the day, there is but one way. There's one way to enter in to true salvation, and that is Jesus Christ alone. And then all of us who enter through him, including all of the local pastors and church leaders, we are all his sheep. We belong to him, one shepherd as a part of one church. That means we're members of the same family. And there are implications when you're a member of a family. You take care of one another when you're a member of a family. You encourage one another when you're a member of a family. You hold each other accountable. You protect one another. You build each other up. It matters to you what is happening in the lives of the other family members. And in the context of that love and support and strength and unity, when we live out the gospel together in front of a lost and dying world, in fact, in the midst of that world, what happens then when our focus is on Jesus Christ, the one shepherd first, and then each other, and then those who have yet to become a part of this family, what happens then is we stop concerning ourselves with all of the things that we want out of church because we're too busy thinking about others. It is then that many of the petty things that people think matter just don't matter anymore when we're focused on others. And this is what the world needs to see from the church today. This is actually what we need more than anything else from the church. We, I think we tend to think that we need all sorts of things from the church, which may be nice, but when the rubber meets the road... When times get tough, when our metal is tested, most of the things that we think that we need from the church fade into irrelevance. And what's left are the relationships that strengthen us, the bonds that unite us, the support that sustains us, and the love of Christ that every single one of us needs to experience from each other which is a love that only members of his family can provide. That is what it means to be a part of one church. Let's pray.